10 o'clock on Friday. Uh, the panel of the hour is Old Timers, Apple II Magazines, with Paul Statt from Insider A Plus and somebody named Tom Weiser from uh, Resource Central. We'll turn it over to them. Well, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Paul. <laughs> You've been around a long time. <laughs> Paul and I, uh, I, I don't know that either one of us uh, um, have anything particularly prepared here. Uh, what, I, what I envisioned uh, coming out of this session was uh, people asking questions, but gee, all of you are as old timers as we are. Or older. So maybe we should just sit around and uh, uh, shoot the ball. One of the... One of the things that has always impressed me is we have a fellow here, Jim Merritt, who uh, uh, used to write a column in Soft Talk called The Pascal Path. And uh, back in those days, Roger Wagner was writing assembly lines in Soft Talk, and I was writing uh, DOS Talk. Uh, it's always uh, several years ago, the three of us were on a panel together at Apple Fest, and I don't think at that point any of us had ever met the other, no. uh, although the magazine had already been defunct for two years. <laughs> and I said, hey, didn't you write, didn't you write? <laughs> so, uh, uh, one of the people that I, I tried to get here this year was Margot Tomervik, who was the editor of Soft Talk, but I couldn't ever make contact with her. Um, <clears throat> so what do you old-timers want to talk about? Any good questions here? Where'd or? you really video Steve Lawson? Excuse me? Where'd you really video Lawson? He was in his home and I was in my office. <clears throat> is, that, is that the question? Mm -hmm. No, that's the answer. That's the answer? <laughs> that's the answer. This is Jeffrey. Um, this guy looks so real. Didn't look palatial or anything. Yeah, we we only got in the. I mean, that that was just his his uh, computer room. Apparently, um, I have I didn't see it, but some people at our office apparently he was on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous earlier this year. Where anybody see that? Where they they actually went around his whole house. <coughs> Uh, Did I, you ever actually get to meet Wozniak? Uh, no. Uh, met his staff. Yeah. <laughs> we met Woz when we when the GS first was introduced, and we decided Apple said we could have him on the cover. It happens to be the one I have. And we went out to do the, the photo shoot, and Apple brought Woz in. Has anyone here ever met Woz? Jim, you probably have. He really is a fascinating guy to talk to, because we weren't interviewing him. So he was just, you know, talking with us off the cuff. And the man, what I always remember about him is that he was literally like a database of jokes. I don't think I've ever heard so many jokes from one person in the course of an hour and a half. It was just one after the other of these jokes. I and mean, anything that anybody mentioned, you could see his mind working, and he'd come up with a, a joke about it. Not all of them were particularly funny, but, <laughs> but he had a lot of jokes. I mean, Impressive guy. But at that time, he was really trying to get out of computers. Back at school. No, he's definitely out of them now. I, yeah. I, I uh, well, I had to edit 
tape for length, but some of the parts that I took out were about him saying that he was really was just a user now. And, um, uh, he, didn't, he didn't do stuff. Uh, How many people there used to read soft talk? I was reading that manual. I actually got started. I worked for an IBM PC magazine <coughs> at the time. Soft talk was popular. And it was a living. And uh, I can recall picking up soft talk because we got it at the office and thinking, this is fun. You know, this looks like a, a sort of fun thing you really want to do. So when the chance came up to work for another Apple magazine, even though it wasn't soft talk, I jumped at the chance because it seemed like a much more fun group of people. Uh, I got involved with Soft Talk because um, <clears throat> about that time I had written Pronto DOS, and I wrote an article that explained how it worked, and I sent it to Soft Talk hoping they would publish it. And of course, Bert Kersey at Beagle Brothers was publishing the program, and I was in touch with him. And at that time, he was writing the DOS Talk column, and he told me that uh, he didn't have time to do it anymore and that he was going to send them a letter uh, of retirement. And I said, well, when you do, tell them that I'd write it for them. And uh, so it just all coincided that they got this article from me and that at the same time, and they liked the article. So Margo called me up and said, I understand you'd like to write this call. She said, okay, let's do it. How about you, Jim? How did you get involved with soft talk? I had been hired by Apple to promote Apple Pascal, and uh, we got a couple of the earliest, I mean, like, you know, 16-page issues of Soft Talk. And so I immediately bristled and said, why, there's no Pascal in here. <laughs> um, and uh, did my best to put on my most diplomatic voice and call them up and said, well, look, if you're interested in doing anything like this, I'd sure be interested in, in reviewing any of the technical material that you're thinking of publishing. And so uh, eventually, not too long after this, she came back and uh, said, why don't you just write us a piece or two? So I said, fine. And I wrote a, a thing that stretched across, I think, three issues originally. It was just a long piece, so they decided they wanted to chop it up. And... Uh, and they just kept wanting me to write more. And so it was like, after that, I was in every issue, except oh. one, where they had, we had a deadline problem. But that was right almost to the end. And then they published two more columns in the magazine over. But uh, I didn't think this was going to be a long-term commitment. <laughs> I had no idea, you know. It was just all of a sudden, here I am, a columnist. And uh, that was a lot of fun. That was something that I didn't know that I could turn out a column. It's a real shame that Soft Talk pulled it. I know the business people at our magazine have pointed out many times that Soft Talk was, compared to A Plus at the time, or or but his name is or Insider, much more. You know, the other two were definitely the second and third magazine. Soft Talk was number one. It was the most uh, had the most advertising, brought in the most money. Um, and really, the only reason that Soft Talk folded was that it wasn't run by a company. It really was uh, run by the people who ran, who put the magazine out. And 
who were not able to absorb losses for one month. And in the magazine business, it's sometimes in the software business too, you know, you don't get cash flow, you don't make the money that you're spending this month, and they just weren't able, by not being a big company, to absorb one month's losses. You know, they couldn't make their payroll and had to close the doors. It's a real shame. I think today someone would have, you know, some big publisher like IDG or Zip Davis would, would pick up a magazine that profitable and keep it going. Because it really did have a whole different attitude there. Does anyone here know the uh, how Softdisk came out of all of this? <laughs> I don't. And I'm always been in very interested. twisted history. Yeah, someone here that twisted history. <laughs> I don't even know. Start twisting the whole story. Um, Soft talk sort of lives on in a bastard form. That Softdisk as an internal newsletter um, huh. hasn't been published in a long time. You know put together by people who don't have time to, to put it together anymore. Um, I'm not sure Al Bacobius owns Softdisk, and I'm not sure how he and Al Tomovic and, and the others got together. But, um, apparently they knew each other either through, through other connections or through, uh, through their work at Softball. The Softdisk was actually started as just trading disks at LSU Medical Center between professors and Albacobias and different people that just wrote little basic programs and handed them out to each other and swapped back and forth. <coughs> they eventually decided to compile it into you know one one set disc instead of twenty different people's discs floating around each other copy. They started putting it together in, in a shell type environment. And as far as the, the transition between soft talk and soft disk, it's I'm not really sure. I haven't sat down and really talked about it. I'd be interested in that. I've read a lot of soft talk and you know, the obvious the soft disc, but that jump between the two is kind of, it's still kind of a, a hazy area. Yeah, it's always been hazy to me too about how how they. I mean, at one point, I mean, when it started, it was all the same company, right? And how it became separated from the rest of it was never clear to me. I'm not sure. I've only worked it a little bit <clears throat> under two years, so I haven't. I have, uh, being in charge of the Apple publication, I have all the soft talk things <laughs> in, in our department. Mm -hmm. But I haven't even read all the issues or, mm -hmm. or gathered the history to really talk mm -hmm. about it. And I probably should have before I came up here. But, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> well, what else was there? There was uh, Call Apple, <clears throat> Peelings 2, you remember Peelings 2? Vaguely. Um, there was another one more recently. 2 Computing. 2 Computing, that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Why did uh, Apple have the developer's program go to Call Apple? And then go back into Apple and now come back out again. Well, they don't want to do it. Well, I mean, is, is this just something where they just can't resist changing everything rapidly enough to keep everyone behind the Um Well, I would say that you have this vision of Apple as a organism with brain. <laughs> and I don't think that's a correct 
a metaphor. A beehive I mean, might be a It's a, it's a, right, it's just a lower brain, a reptile brain. I mean, it doesn't have to have the major thinking It's, I mean, like any large organization, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, what it does is, uh, based on politics and how many votes there are, and um, the other thing you have to remember is that the employees probably turn over every three years. I mean, one of the problems we had back when we were on that uh, uh, developer association thing, you went to some of those meetings, didn't you, Paul? Was it? I mean, we only met for 18 months, and every time we went, we were talking to different people. Uh, you know, and you'd think you'd have it all set up with one guy, and six weeks later, he's moved on to work for somebody else. And you got a whole new set of people to work with who are all coming in brand new. Uh, uh, you know, and um, uh, I don't exactly remember the history of how that started. I suspect that it started with uh, the people that call Apple, which was a Seattle user group, basically, probably set up APTA. I mean, they set up APTA in the first place. Yeah. And I imagine uh, that they went to Apple and said, let us do this. And somebody at Apple said, okay. And then it got a lot bigger than anybody at Apple ever thought it would. So it's always uh, Right. And then Apple, somebody at Apple said, well, we can't let this little user group out here control our destiny like this. So they took it back in. I mean, this is just my guess. And then uh, I can give you some true history about the last part, which was simply that, that uh, APTA, um, you know, found dealing with the Apple II products unprofitable. I mean, they, they, wanted to, uh, they wanted to concentrate on the Mac ones, and they knew that they weren't servicing the Apple II customers as, as well as, as they should be, um, and they felt they couldn't do it profitably. And... Uh, we had approached them a number of times over the last few years about whether we could buy selected products from them uh, for resale. And the last time we went to do that, they just said, how would you like them all? <laughs> and we said, well, let me think about that three seconds. <laughs> so that's how that end of it developed. Um, what else do you remember, Paul? Oh, From the good old days. The good old days. Right. Did you guys have, um, when you first got into the Apple II stuff and all the, of the big utilities and things like that came out, did you go out and buy everything that there was and play around with them? Uh, or did you just pretty much write your own, well, in this case, write your own stuff? Or did you play with all the, all the new things that came out? Uh, I was your typical frugal Apple II user. Frugal uh, is the word he used. I mean, I, I bought stuff, continue to buy stuff, but not everything that came out. Um, and particularly in the early stages, I was really dependent on my Apple dealer. Uh, I mean, when I went to buy my first computer, I went in to buy a... a uh, another kind of computer, I don't remember the name of it, but it, it was colored, it was CPM, and I went into the store and told them I wanted one, oh. and the guy said, uh, uh, well, we have one, it's back at the factory for the third time being repaired, but when we get it back, I really would like to sell it to you. 
<laughs> and uh, so we were talking. He said, look, you don't want that. You want this apple here. This is what you want. And so I looked at it. I said, well, I And um, so I bought it and messed around for a long time. But then I remember the next thing is I went into him one day and I said, I've been reading. There's something called an assembler. Do you have one of those things? Oh, yes. I've got this one right here. You know, so unlike now where you would look and read up on what all the assemblers are and what they do, I mean, I just took the one that he had on the shelf and he said it was good. And I mean, I know now that he didn't know what an assembler was. <laughs> but uh, that was the one he had on the shelf. Uh, uh, later on, of course, once you get associated... Which one was it? Hmm? It was Lisa. Liza. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the fact that I did anything with it, I think, is quite an accomplishment. Yes. Um, the, uh, uh, that reminds me of crazy things. Of course, I don't want to insult Jim Merritt, but you remember Bill Basham, uh, one of my, my competitors, he wrote Diversitas. So it turns out that he did all of his stuff on the P-System assembler, yes. um, which, I mean, I thought I was handicapped, but Having having to use that Pascal editor to do anything, but he 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 knew the keystrokes. So uh, what's your fingers learned? It? <laughs> <laughs> uh, where were we? Oh, the, one of the great advantages of being associated with Beagle Brothers, Alan can attest, is that Bill Burke would send you one of everything. Uh, so I did have all the Beagle Brothers stuff, but I didn't have to pay for it. Uh, of course, reviewers like Paul, they... Well, I was going to say, yeah, we, I have to confess that I'm probably the cheapest Apple II user ever. I think that I bought two pieces of software <laughs> in my life. One of them was a Beagle Brothers product, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. Did you write Program Writer, Alan? Yeah. No. It was either that or Ultra Macros was the one thing that I felt... I had to buy because I used it so much. I thought it would be unfair not to buy that. And the other thing I bought was the uh, Reliefware game from uh, Milestones from Ken Franklin. I sent him the money because I thought it was too good a cause not to send the money. But it's, yeah, we don't pay for anything. <laughs> I mean, we, we get all the software for free anyway, so we wouldn't bother to write any of our own. It's, uh, it's a great thing about being in, in this business. I mean, it's kind of like heaven to not have to ever buy any software. You get all the newest stuff. I think, see, if you pay for all your stuff, you do have a certain, uh, I guess you'd have to call it more integrity than we do by not. Yes, I think you would have to call it that. But, uh, but I said it. Oh, we've got to go back to work. Right. <laughs> we get back to work. But, uh, but it's fun to get it. That's what made, for me, I know at Insider A+, Plus, the most exciting time had to be when the, when the GS was new, when there actually were a lot of new products coming out for the GS, and we you know, would really look forward to coming in and getting new, new software every day. You know, we do a lot of reviews. It's frankly been merely, you know, it's, it's very sad for us the last few years to have less and less new Apple II software coming out. You know, it's been very hard to find something to build Yeah, if you want to. Although it's, it's actually picked up a little in the past few months, so maybe there's a, yeah. maybe there's a little bump. 
Although, Eric, I, I, like most of us, I suspect, when I first bought that computer, I figured I'd be writing a word processor as one of the first things, you know, because I knew that I needed to have a word processor. Never did uh, get into that. Uh, I, I did learn a lot of assembly language by disassembling Apple Writer, though. That was uh, uh, the basic text I had on how to do assembly language. Uh, how about you, Bill? What, what did you do when you uh, got the, your hands on the first one? Did you write your own? Uh, the first two GS. No, the first. Well, you were. Did you start with an Apple II, or were you already into it? Yeah, an Apple II. There wasn't a plus after it. <laughs> I was pretty young, and I was. I had a paper route, and I saved up eight hundred dollars to buy a used Apple II. And disk drives? What's that? I went to a friend's house and had a disk drive, copied all the latest software on cassette tape, took it home, and I remember very fondly having this Apple II sitting on my bed. This cheesy TV I was able to fix from the garage, and I was playing Falcons all night. <laughs> and uh, what was it? The original Apple Invaders. And where, where I really got into my programming was that this interesting game called Ultima came out. And of course, I had a break in I couldn't resist. <laughs> so I got the protection, I noticed the game was all written in basic. <coughs> so I thought, Gee, you know, I solved the game, I thought, maybe if I do this to the game, maybe if I do that to the game. Next thing I knew, I had a game I called Ultima Plus, which would have features like pillage, rape, and plunder. Um, <laughs> and I went into the monsters and added my own graphics. So I had, uh, since I loved arcade games at the time, there was a 12th level in the dungeon, which never was there before. And you were attacking Pac-Man, Centipedes, um, <laughs> Tempest Clippers. Um, but with that, I was able to basically disassemble everything in the game, find how everything worked. And from then, I started building up and learning more and more about the computer. But I still remember all those late nights um, just programming away on Ultima just to figure how it worked. And a friend of mine named Steve Yeager, who I was visiting his house on a regular basis because he had a disk drive. <laughs> he was like, you know, like two in the morning, he would then say, Bill, that's a good idea, you go home. <laughs> Yeah, I, one of the uh, when when I bought my first one, an interesting little aside is that, that when when I bought, took it home from the store, I I bought a modem with it, but I did not have a disk drive. Now, of course, it was a 300 baud modem at the time, and I, I had a subscription to the source. But it turned out that 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 angle of it never developed. I I, I mean, I thought I was going to be real interested in that, but 300 baud was just so slow that I couldn't stand it, and I ended up not doing anything with that at all and going back six weeks later and saying, I really think I need a disk drive to do anything with it. Uh, and then somehow was not involved at all in telecommunications until uh, Jeannie called me up and insisted that I run their Apple II area several years ago. Uh, it's funny how things work. I can give an interesting anecdote on the first computer. Mine was a 2E. I, I was a late bloomer. <coughs> and uh, a friend of ours, where my wife had taught, where we had children, bought an Apple II computer because she heard you could do Spanish with tiltes above the ends and accents in the right places. And so she bought this Apple II Plus, just when they went to 48K. A 
called the Apple II Plus. She was going to write her own Spanish software. That lasted about a week. <laughs> she just didn't have a mind for, you know, she had the Apple the DOS toolkit and all that kind of stuff. And, and I had just taken a, a thing at school, the computer teacher taught a five-week course met every Wednesday night for about two hours on AppleSoft Basic. And of course, your average teacher was in there that had no idea what they were getting into, like myself. And we got all the way through the print command. And I think we did a four next one home. And a couple others. And uh, so I, I got the AppleSoft manual and started reading it on Hall Duty. So then when this teacher, this friend, didn't like the computer, they just put it on the shelf. I mean, they spent $2,700 for an Apple II Plus with one drive, you know, that kind of thing. So how about I borrow it this summer? So I borrowed it that summer and started hacking away at some programs and stuff, and, and it was a lot of fun. And then I needed a CAD system for my classroom in school, and I thought design your own home and found out that you couldn't design an outhouse with it because there was no scale to it whatsoever. It was just, I don't know, I could do better than that. So I started writing one on the school's computer. And I'd stay after school, and I was writing the CAD draw on the school computer. And that spring, just before it was done, at the county workhouse, this big front page news for a week, the prisoners were using water at county expense to wash the cars of the administrators to earn money so they could pay their fines and get out of jail. And there was this huge outrage that two cents worth of taxpayer money had been used to get this guy off of taxpayers' money, keeping him in jail. And my wife said, we're going to have to do it. So we went out and bought an Apple II, and you know, I really sweat bullets over whether to get a 2E with 80 column or extended 80 column. And I went with the big bucks and depleted our savings and went with extended 80 column <laughs> card. And, uh, and, and, you uh, spend for got a computer to finish up that first program, and I, the, when I sold it to my first dealer, I had to get an advance check on the first first sale so I could buy a printer so that I could show them what the output really looked like <laughs> before they totally commit to really going full hog on the, on the program. Okay, Walker Roger, I guess you're going to have to tell us the history of quality computers. <laughs> <laughs> we really want to know that. Yeah, I mean, you guys do a publication too. You've got an answer. Go, but go all the way back. Start at the very beginning. The very beginning, I don't know why it was like. Was, but, uh, but I'm not sure okay. Uh, essentially, Joe Gleason, who's the founder of our company, wrote a program uh, which was called uh, RAMA. Uh, it was later to be named RAMA. He wrote it under contract for a gentleman, and uh, this person kind of snipped him with these. So Joe said, okay, I'll take this program and I'll market it. So he ended up running uh, ads in Insider Magazine, A-plus magazine at the time, really. And uh, in addition to RAM Up, which is a RAM mismanagement program, he had ended up selling light engineering RAM cards and uh, things merging from there. He started in the basement of his parents' house and uh, within two years moved out to a real office. And uh, now we've expanded. We've been growing at the rate of about 50% uh, a year 
almost doubling uh, our size every year. Uh, now we have a beautiful office and we've really expanded the uh, <coughs> warehouse space. So it's, uh, it's amazing, <laughs> really. Uh, you know, what the Appleton market still has left in it is uh, just amazing. There's there's a lot of you said food and there's still there's still money to be made in the Appleton. All right. What 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 was your background before? I mean, what at what point did you become connected? Joe and I met on the bulletin board. He contacted me to write a few assembly routines for. Programmer, Joe's a basic programmer, and uh, he needed to do things like uh, a quick call in order to get back into his program instead of dropping out to the uh, ProDOS prompt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we, uh, we ended up uh, doing that, and he contracted me for a few more routines, and he mentioned that he just hired me to come on and uh, do various things. Everybody in the company at that point was doing basically everything. You know, we were small enough that everybody had their hands in everything. So if uh, if we had packages to ship, we'd all be late there shipping, and uh, still do that to some extent. But uh, unfortunately, have more people <laughs> are usually a little bit more accurate than we are. Thinking about magazines, I, in the beginnings, I know that um, Insider was originally founded by uh, Wayne Green. I don't know if any of you remember that name. He no longer has anything to do with Insider, but he founded a lot of computer magazines. The first one was Byte. And he started Byte in Peterborough. He, was, he could have been an Apple II user because he came, he lived in New York City and had done ham radio magazines. I wanted to uh, move to southern New Hampshire, so I came up to southern New Hampshire and told the real estate agent, <coughs> so I only need a house that has to, <coughs> has to be big enough that I can publish a magazine in it. <laughs> so it has to be a pretty big house. It has to be very high on top of a hill so that I can have my ham radio stuff. It has to be fairly high up. You know, so it has to be a big house to publish a magazine on top of a hill. And I don't want to pay anything for it. <laughs> and the real estate agent amazingly got over her. This is true, got over her shock, and then said, "Well, I guess that would be the old Bleak House, which was a house that, that was a historical house that they wanted to just have someone in for no money. So they gave it to him for no money to run the magazine out of there. It happened to be right on top of the house. It was uh, big enough to." run several magazines. We all worked in this house for uh, a number of years when, when Wayne still owned the company. And uh, he, he was pretty cheap. <laughs> but it worked for him. I guess it proves that you should ask, you know, get what you ask for. But um, he was someone who did uh, really believe in the Apple II at the beginning. He started the magazine really before the Apple II was very popular, just on the strength of having met uh, Wozniak and Jobs in uh, where was the show where they first showed it in New Jersey or uh, somewhere on the East Coast? Some first East Coast show where they had a small booth and were showing off an Apple One, and he said that this is going to be a big deal for hobbyists, and it grew 
Well, then the other Wayne Green-like person is uh, Steve Disbro. <laughs> I was just thinking. What's, uh, the, what's the history of your public? Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, well, I got into computers actually with a uh, TRS 80 Model 1, which Wayne Green also published in a magazine called 80 Micro. And to show you how much I knew about computers, I thought they called it 80 Micro because the year was 1980. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend, uh, I my, to say. my friend, an original, the person who originally got me into computers, Jeff Walker. Who, uh, who now does Macintosh development for a company called Screaming Technology. Um, when it when the year changed to 1981, we were all in high school. I said, "What did they change the name?" So he had a, he had a TRS-80 Model One, and I of course had to have one. So I uh, one of our, our drafting teacher from the high school was moving away, and he needed to sell his computer to, to make some money so he could afford to move 120 miles away to Atlanta to start a new teaching job, which I guess tells you exactly how much high school teachers make. And uh, so I bought the computer. I, I convinced my father that I'd be able to balance his checkbook with it. And uh, bought it. It was a 4K TRS-80 Model 1 with uh, a tape deck, which I still have, and you have to put pennies in to get the play button to work. Um, and then uh, we we, uh, we we were we would read 80 micro. That's where 80 micros is one place I got a lot of ideas for GS Plus magazine. And they used to have a lot of humor in that magazine, which I really liked. I I've never thought that uh, for me this has always been fun. And when I decided to start GS Plus magazine, there was so much things were just beginning to really deteriorate in this market as far as the attitude that everybody was perceiving from Apple. And I just like the Tell jokes, so I decided to try and put some humor in it. But uh, so I read uh, I read 80 Micro for a bunch of years, um, and then at one when I got into college, I needed a modem, and they they had just announced the 2C, and uh, I was sitting there watching the news, and they were announcing the 2C. And at that time, I was uh, in the TRS80 user group, and the Apple group met across town, and we used to have big big fist fights in the middle of the football field, you know, where you me. And uh, so I saw the 2C on there, and I went down to the local Apple dealer. I stealthily, I didn't let any of my fellow TRS users know. <laughs> and uh, I priced it. Like I said, I needed a modem to do my to do my homework uh, at home at, at, so I could call it the mainframe. And uh, it was more expensive to add the peripheral equipment to a TRS-80 to let it use a modem than it was to buy a brand new 2C and a modem with the 2C having, no monitor, having a retail price of $1,300. So that tells you uh, just how expensive TRS-80 crud was. So I bought the, I bought the 2C, and uh, I started using that, and talking about 300 baud modems, I wrote a I wrote a thousand line interpreters on my projects over a 300 baud modem one, one very long winter. And, uh, that was a long. It was a very long winter, very long static cool. winter. And um, uh, then what? Let's forget the GS. And then, and then my 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 wife, who was with my girlfriend, her family was into Ataris, Atari STs and stuff. And uh, I kept trying to get everybody to wait for the new Apple II. You know, wait for the new. Don't buy an Amiga. Don't buy an ST. Wait for the new Apple II because otherwise. You'll have a better machine than I will. Um, and so she went ahead and bought an ST, and 
<coughs> the ST, there started being these magazines for it, like Start, um, what was the other one? What was the other ones? ST Log. All these magazines had disks with them. They had you didn't type in any source code. I read Call Apple, and I thought it was neat, but I couldn't stand these little tiny programmers yes. and 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 typo two codes. Who had that? Who who, who was that typo two codes? Was that new? I think I couldn't stand all the listings, and I thought, well, why not have a magazine and a disk with all the source code on it? I mean, that makes a, a hell of a lot more sense to me. I mean, and besides, with all these toolbox programs, I read this wonderful article. Insider talking about the imminent arrival of all these high-level languages for the two D. Yeah, how easy it was. Oh, that you wrote that, didn't you? Real soon now. Real soon now. Yeah. 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 People had like eighteen different languages coming out just any day now, right. and I think they sell those still. Uh, I last I heard, they had left the country and reconstituted in Britain, and they're still trying to track them down. Good for But so I was like, uh, I was, you know. I've been looking at the toolbox stuff, and I'm saying, man, if you're going to write these things, you're not going to be able to get one of these listings in a magazine, unless it's, that's the whole magazine that you're program listing. So we went to Apple Fest, and we walked around, and uh, I asked the people to call Apple if they might be interested in doing something like this. I asked the, I, I emailed the editor of A+, who at that time was Fred, uh, I got more money than you gave us, and uh, um, Nibble, I don't think I talked to the folks at Insider. About it. And I asked everybody what they thought of the idea, and they just kind of blew me off. So I said, well, hell. <laughs> so I went back home, and by that time, I guess I had the 2GS, and uh, I'd been inspired by these other magazines and a micro. And I got, I was working for the government then at the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is, was at the time had just been taken over by Marvin Runyon, who is now our new Postmaster General, and is about to start cutting the job at the post office. <laughs> because he cut 11,000 jobs at TDA, including mine, when he came in. And when I got the, the layoff, I just decided, well, I've always wanted to have my own business, so this is a pretty good time. And that was it. Is that why it's an ego system? Is that why it's ego system? Oh, ego systems. Okay. Uh, one, of the, one of the great things about Noreen and mine's relationship is that... Uh, we break up, we used to break up a lot. So at one time we broke up. One time we broke up and I started going out with this girl. And after about three days she told me I was the most egotistical bastard she'd ever met. And so I thought, damn, great name for a company. And she said, Oh, you would think that way. And that was where that name came from. <laughs> now that girl's won the Royal League. And that, that, that's basically it. That's the whole thing. Now, well, there's, there's, there's a parallel there. If, uh... Oh, yeah. We, we also, we, we, when we were looking for a house after we got married, we said it has to have a big basement so I can put a magazine, <laughs> magazine on it. And it just happens to be on a hill. We God bless the recession. It is, the interest rate's pretty cheap. So I'm sorry, uh, I was just going to say that the the uh, open apple. Uh, well, I didn't get laid off from the TVA. It was a very similar kind of situation. In that, what I was doing at the time is, uh, uh, I well, I had uh, a couple of programs that I'd written for Beagle Brothers, uh, but as uh, uh, Alan can attest, at least the Beagle Brothers experiences, he'd write a program and. Uh, the sales curve went like this. 
<laughs> uh, you'd sell a whole bunch the first six months, but then after that, it, they trailed off really fast. Uh, and uh, this was uh, 1984, and Soft Talk had gone under in August, and so the column was no longer available. The other thing that I had done was I had written two books uh, that were going to be published by Soft Talk, but because they were in bankruptcy, uh, the rights to the books were in limbo. In other words, Soft Talk wasn't going to publish them, but I couldn't get the rights back to publish them myself. So it was sort of like being laid off from the TVA. Uh, and and uh, so I sat there and said, well, what am I, what am I going to do? I had, um, for another company, I, I had worked on a newsletter uh, before, many of you probably don't realize that I was once editor of the Cotton Trade Newsletter, uh, and uh, later was uh, head of not only the Cotton Trade Newsletter, but the uh, Sugar Trade and the Coffee Trade and the uh, Cocoa Trade Newsletters. Uh, in fact, my wife used to say that if they would just give me tobacco, they could just shorten my title to the addiction side. <laughs> uh, but... Um, at any rate, those were weeklies, and I knew deep in my soul that I never wanted to be associated with a weekly publication again because there's a, you've got to do it every week when it's a weekly publication. But I thought, well, I really don't want to do this, but I suppose I'm going to have to because I'd like to, I like to make a living. So that's uh, where Open Apple originally started from, and uh, why it was a, was a, was a monthly was... Uh, uh, just the, the old hunger of uh, having to do something. Uh, I think the hunger for having wanting to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> what, what Tom is glossing over is that unlike a lot of the people who are involved in the computer press, um, you're trained as a journalist. You actually <laughs> are. I'm a, I'm a trained journalist. Right? He uh, is a trained professional at this. And I know when I was working at a Insider already when Open Apple first came out, <laughs> And I was not trained as a journalist, nor was I trained in computers. And I was, uh, what were you trained? I was, I wasn't trained in much of all. I, I knew quite a bit about, uh, Arthurian romances. But I was, I had to, I was trained as a math teacher, actually, and I taught math and English in school. But I remember when Open Apple first came out, I, the thing that really struck me from, from my struggles with being with explaining this stuff to the general public was how easily, how easy, how well, how well explained everything was in Open Apple. And I think that it made a great impression on me, and I loved it. It came at the time when I first was starting to be, I became the technical editor of the Insider, and had to answer people's questions in the magazine. I really had very little idea of, uh, of what was going on. I was glad to hear Roger Wagner said, told me yesterday that when he wrote the assembly lines column, for uh, soft talk, that he was one month ahead. What he was learning was what you were reading the next <laughs> month. And I thought that made me feel better. At least yeah. that was a good company. Yeah. But I was very thankful. I was so thankful for Tom's newsletter that Open Apple's gotten me in trouble more than once <laughs> because I wrote a letter to Tom when I first got this and said, "I don't know if you remember this, Tom." No, I said, "This we, is we the talk uh, about it. We're just talking this about is it the, the uh, this is the best Apple II magazine I've ever read. <laughs> you can quote me." So call me to check. Being a journalist, Are you, you know, sure? Are you sure? You know, if your mother says she loves you, you check it out. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Are you sure about this? You can quote me." And I said, "Quote me." 
So he used it in his next direct mail piece to say, Paul Stat, head editor of A plus, that insider, <laughs> says this is the best uh, publication there is. Well, I thought that was fine because I really did mean it. You know, I thought it was much. I mean, if I if I at the time I was working for Insider, if I could get one Apple II publication, that would have been it. Uh, but the publisher of Insider <laughs> got a hold of this and did not have the same uh, broad-minded, non-competitive feel about this that I did, and called me into. Uh, I knew he was going oh, to. Oh, I know. <laughs> so I got to do a lot. I did keep my job because I explained to her. She was a woman at that time. I explained to her why. <laughs> now, uh, I think she's retired, actually. I explained that she, she came to understand that I somehow I did then also get in trouble because Tom used to advertise in Insider. Yeah. And uh, we have a strict policy at Insider because we have advertising that the advertising people sell ads and we editorial people can't fraternize with the people who buy ads at the same time. And this one time, the person, the girl who sold ads, Tom, said, this was in Kansas City, I think, the publisher, the new publisher at this time, Tom said, you can't do that. You can't, we can't have the editors of the ad people fraternizing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was great. Um, <laughs> up the tab. Yeah. Could, you, could you expand a little bit on the fact that you are the only uh, trained journalist here and your publication is the only publication that doesn't accept advertising? Let me see. Do you want the three-minute version or the five-minute version? Five. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I mean, I, it just accidentally happened that I originally got a degree in uh, English and radio, television, film, and then I was in the Peace Corps, and then I came back. And I was totally unskilled to do anything. I was like Paul. You ever seen Paul and I? I went back and got a master's degree, and he didn't. I didn't that skill. And uh, um, the University of Kansas just happens to have a uh, really excellent journalism school, and I just happened to be old enough that I was finally interested in learning something. And in two years, I probably learned as much as I had uh, in the previous six uh, in uh, regular college, and so that that was it. at the time I was actually interested in agricultural journalism, uh, and I had big plans to start a, a weekly newspaper, uh, uh, like a Wall Street Journal for agriculture, and actually had several different companies uh, interested in doing it. But over a period of years, we could never get it off the ground. And as it turned out, it, uh, back at the time that that I was making these plans. You all probably don't remember this, but back in the very in the early 70s, the, it was when the Soviet Union first started buying grain from the U.S. and the, the farm economy was really booming. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that if we I had succeeded in getting that paper off of the ground, it would have gone bust in the late 70s. And, I mean, it, it's ever since then the the farm economy hasn't been strong enough to support a paper like that. At any rate, it never got off the ground. But I ended up working at a company here in town called Commodity News Services, and that's where I was doing all of these uh, various agricultural newsletters. Um, so what does this all have to do? There was a there was a trick there you asked. Oh, what about advertising? Why is it that that uh, um, we don't take advertising? Uh, it's no grand plan. It's sort of like my answer to him before. You think this organism has a brain, but it doesn't. <laughs> uh, um, 
At one time, we were taking, uh, we were letting people put inserts into our envelopes, uh, and they were paying us, uh, and it was kind of like advertising, and it was a real hassle. Uh, the, you know, getting the people, finding people who wanted to do it, and, and getting the stuff there on time, and getting it in the right place to get it in the envelopes. And simultaneously with that, we were just starting to sell some stuff, some books I had written and stuff. And it just turned out that selling our own stuff just seemed easier than trying to get inserts, and it was also producing more revenue uh, than the inserts were. Uh, an advertising department just requires a whole other organization inside the organization, people to go out and make the sales and to collect the ads and to keep track of who's where and who got what month and what page, and uh, it's just as a major operation. Uh, as it happens, uh, I think it was just it, it was accidentally good for us uh, in that um, uh, as the Apple II market has developed and fewer people are advertising, uh, we have publications like Nibble who just got to the point where there weren't enough ads to continue to support the magazine. But the magazine that they had historically produced was big enough. Um, well, I, I, let me let me start over. Another way to say this, in the context of us taking over Nibble, uh, what happened was a very capitalistic thing. We were the low-cost producer. We can produce our newsletter and mail it out at a lower cost than Nibble could produce their magazine and mail it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, I mean, that's basically why uh, uh, when they came to us and said, would you fulfill the rest of our subscriptions, uh, it was would be so much cheaper for me to do it that I said, yeah, I'll take the risk. I mean, we're, we would both, in terms of Nibble and I, we were both in the same position of making the same amount of money, i.e., the money is going to come from the people who renew. But the, from their point of view, the expenses they had of sending out their magazines <coughs> It was no longer worth the risk, and that's it was worth the risk. Um, but that all connects in with the advertising, because for a magazine like Paul's or Nibble, uh, the advertising is the major source of revenue. Uh, and and for us, no, yes, it's, no. It's about. It's funny you should because when we took over A Plus, it was for a similar reason to this that we were the lower cost. And that we at Insider had the advantage of not being strictly advertising driven. We right. remain about we get about fifty percent of our revenues from the subscriber base, whereas the old A plus got almost all of its revenue from advertising. So as soon as advertising started to drop off, they they couldn't afford to publish the magazine anymore. So this yeah. is the way of the publishing. Yeah, advertising is a major thing. We, we, when we started out, we didn't take any because I wanted to try and stay completely unbiased. But after after I hired Joe full time, it, it was just very painfully obvious that there was no way I was going to be able to keep the magazine afloat if I didn't at least have some advertising to offset the cost of printing the magazine. It cost, now Tom was talking about how cheap it is to, to produce and mail through the magazine. It well, I didn't, didn't mean to indicate that it's cheap. <laughs> oh, no. but it's, it's cheaper than. <laughs> four, I, I guess I guess four or eight pages is, is, is probably definitely cheaper than the fifty-two that, that we we put out. But um, it cost me as much to mail because of the weight. It cost me as much to mail my magazines as it does to print them. 
And I have yet, we don't have a lot of advertising, I have yet to make back the cost of printing a single issue from advertising in that issue. So I, I um, maybe I've got our rates set too low, I don't know, but um, it, it, is a, it is a major pain. And, uh, but, you know, it, it helps defray the cost. And uh, people, people want to know about that stuff. I mean, they, they want, uh, from what I've heard, they want to see the advertising because they, that's really, mail order is the only way they've got to, to get new products. Especially now, yeah, because yeah. the mail order is so important because people can't go to their local store to buy this. you'll find this, this afternoon, yeah. you'll find the next kid. You can't go to your local <laughs> Apple dealer. Advertising is a major pain, too, just because you, um, I mean, my year isn't complete unless I, you know, made one advertiser pull out of the magazine. <laughs> and, uh, they don't like, and it's hard sometimes when someone who, you know, is a, is a, not a friend, but someone you know, you know, sends you a product and you have to just say this is really an awful product. And you know that they're going to pull out their ad. Uh, and you give them a bad review. I always remember that, uh, that the one, the, the one company that always did the right thing when they got a bad review was Beagle Brothers. Because what Beagle Brothers would do, I can remember writing a bad review of something they did. It was one of their first, uh, it wasn't even bad, it was a good review, it was a Beagle Brothers product. But I said, like, the documentation is too sketchy, the installation program is too buggy. And instead of, you know, calling up to complain, they did the extraordinary thing of going back and changing the documentation <laughs> and, you know, actually learning something from it. But, but uh, I'm, uh, I've been trying to think all this hour, I think his name is Robert Hilschenberg, but I can't remember exactly. Especially when we're talking about accepting advertising. 1980 or so, we were at Muse, and of course the Apple II market was just going. Correct. And there was soft talk started about two months after this whole thing happened. Uh, Robert Helgenberg, he had started writing a newsletter with software reviews. It was in uh, Pennsylvania someplace. And he was writing very good software reviews. Sending them out to local clubs and so forth, and he started getting a subscription list. He was getting a, a very good subscription. He reviewed a couple of our products favorably, and he reviewed one that he didn't like. And we were impressed with uh, from what we've seen. Uh, we were getting a, a pretty good, um, a pretty good. Uh, and this guy was this guy was impressive. If you listen to his reviews. Um, uh, you had a pretty good idea of what the software was about. Well, one day in comes a letter from him saying that uh, radically new proposal. Um, he was going to change his policy and he was going to require anybody who was reviewed in his software reviews to take out an ad. <laughs> and the size of the ad was going to determine the size of the review. <laughs> and, oh boy, that's um, a different thing. Uh, if, you, if you want a really big ad, you would definitely get a really big review. And this is a rifle letter. And he put out one issue after that. <laughs> Does anybody know what the... Um what the good housekeeping seal of approval means. You've heard of it, I'm sure. 
you know what you have to do to earn? You have to advertise. The Good Housekeeping seal of approval goes to any company that advertises in the magazine Good Housekeeping. We are not like that, but it's very common in the magazine industry to uh, to give your reviews. To... Well, it's uh, 33 seconds after 10 o'clock. This oh, session ended right at 10, didn't it? Uh, so we will uh, cut this off, and we'll be back in 10 minutes uh, or more.